as one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Answer the Republic for which it stands. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. Well, I'm not a crook. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. One nation under God. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. And you can see the two towers, a huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. Good Lord, there are no words. Indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Title IX, the landmark civil rights law. It marked a watershed moment for women's rights when it passed in 1972. And the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. Legal Anatomy of Current Events, preparing for launch. Legal Anatomy of Current Events, launch sequence started. D-16, IU green to go, propellants pressurized. T minus 15, legal anatomy of current events. SC ready and green to go. T minus 14, FOS ready, green to go. T minus 12, S1C fuel tank pressurized. T minus 11, SC green to go. Legal anatomy of current events, green to go. T minus 10, internal power, green to go. LES ready for ignition. T minus 9, 8, 7. We have ignition. Five, four, commit for launch. Green, three, two, one. We have liftoff. Repeat, we have liftoff. Legal anatomy of current events, all for you. Now, on the air, target locked. Hello, America. Welcome to the legal anatomy of current events. I'm Gary Bell, along with Brad Pollock. We're attorneys. Our law firm is in Denver, Colorado. This show is for you. This show is to break down current events to their component parts. That's why we call it legal anatomy. So we take current events that happen across the United States. We want to explain it to you. We want you to be able to explain it to somebody else. And we want to break it down to its component parts. Easy to understand. Doesn't matter what it is. Any current events, this is not a political show. This is a non-biased legal show, even though we might be talking about politically charged events. We're going to give you the legal analysis of it so that you understand it. And if you ever have any questions of uh, myself or Brad Pollock or our law firm, Bell & Pollock, you can email us at info at legalanatomy.net. That's info, I-N-F-O, at legalanatomy.net. Okay, in the news, right? In the news, we've had this railroad strike railroad problem, the unions and the management and the railroad companies could not come together. Some of the unions agreed to this contract. Some of them didn't. Some of them wanted to ratify it. Some of them didn't want to ratify it. And so today we're going to show you exactly how the government, right, can impair, can get involved with a contract between two private parties. So think about that. We have two private parties and the government is mandating to the unions and to the company what the terms and conditions of employment and the union contract are going to be. How can they do that? What is the power of the government to do that? 
We're going to explore that with you today on Legal Anatomy of Current Events. That's in the news. And it's a fascinating subject with a fascinating American history. And it goes all the way back to the Great Depression. And so we're not going to cover a lot of history, but we're going to cover some relevant history so that you have an understanding of how the United States government can just up and impose their mandate on two private parties. I mean, Brad, think about it. That's like um, that's like maybe Joe's Pizza Store down here on the corner has a contract with a supplier, maybe for uh, cheese, mozzarella cheese, and so things aren't going so well, but the government steps in and mandates the terms and conditions of that contract. Let's talk about that a minute. It, it's, it's an interesting concept because you have to go back to the beginning part of why we have what's called the, quote, contract clause, uh, close quote, in, um, in our, our Constitution. What was the reason? What were the framers thinking about? Uh, what were they doing? The, the more you, you go into the history of our Constitution and the, the reasoning behind it and what was going on and the provisions that were put in the Constitution, the more you realize really how diverse our framers were and also how, how you know, really uh, they were addressing modern-day problems that were going to continue into their modern-day problems at that time that were going to continue into the future. And each one of them had to have their own little bit of expertise. Because when we get to the history or the reason why we have a contract clause, it's very interesting uh, what they were trying to do and what, what their goal was. Now, how does that go on into the future? And what was it to be meant in the future? Uh, what were the limitations in the contract clause itself? And, and why do we care about it now? Uh, well, we care about it. As you said, Gary, we, we talk about what, you know, we just have a, a, the railways wanting to go on strike, and we have the government stepping in saying, can't do that. We're not going to allow you. Not only you can't do it, but here are your new terms and conditions. Now, you know, I have forever thought the railways uh, were subject to additional regulations, just as the airlines are, because they need licenses to be able to operate their 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 business across our throughout our skies and across our land. And you know, quite often, the railroads get special privileges with regard to the the where they want to run their railroads and how they're going to run them and when they're going to run them and what they're going to do going through different towns and. They, they get licenses and they get permission from the, the varying public entities. But this goes back to now what we're talking about is a simple strike where we have uh, an employee from the railroad wanting to get a better stake in life as far as what's going on with uh, the, the, the pay wages or payroll or work or whatever might be the benefits they're trying to get, and the railroad wanting to get a better chance at operating at a profit by trying to hold down its costs of labor. And uh, the, this is to really two private entities uh, trying to do, uh, just, just carry out their their rights and what powers they might have to get themselves into a better station in life that they figure is better for them. Well, you were talking about the contract clause, so we're talking specifically about Article 1, Section 10 of the United States Constitution. So here's what we're dealing with today. So our subject, as you know, for legal anatomy today is how can the United States government impose terms and conditions on two private parties, i.e. the railroad unions and the railroad companies. So Article 1, Section 10 states, no state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. No state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. But that's exactly what has just happened, Brad. That's uh, the United States government has stepped in. But first of all, let's cover, Brad, the fact that the United States Constitution says no state. Well, the federal government's not a state, right? 
Right. The federal government's not a state, so the federal government can pass laws, and they did pass laws. Well, yeah. I mean, let's go back to what was happening with the framers of the Constitution. They put that provision in because what they found was that they wanted to have entities, foreign entities, they wanted to have other people enter into contracts with other with members of the United States at that time, the 13 colonies. They wanted to carry out business relationships. Well, the problem he ran into, and our framers found, is, is that uh, if there was a person from, let's say, France who wanted to enter into a contract from a colony or one of the states, uh, pick anyone you want, New York, and wanted to carry out contracts with them and wanted to carry out business, uh, what they found was is that, that if that was a preferred person, somebody who had special clout within the, the state of New York, uh, that person could enter into a contract, become indebted to the person from France, could become owing to the person from France, maybe from a neighboring colony, but could become uh, have a, a due, due to business relationships, and then he could walk down to the local legislature of New York and say, "I want you to pass a law saying that I don't have to honor that contract, I don't have to pay that contract, I don't have to pay the bill," and in impeding on the enforceability of the contract for the outsider. So, you know, it was very, it was very much a necessary provision to be able to make sure that you had foreign entities or outside entities, foreign entities, not just meaning foreign country, but an entity outside the state, uh, willing to do business with a preferred person, a special person within the state, such that they felt confident that the state was not going to step in and make their recovery of their business debt or their of their business rights impossible through a law. So the United States came up and said, no state will pass a provision or a law prohibiting contractual relationships or prohibiting enforcement of contracts. They didn't say anything about the United States doing that, though. They no. just said that no state. So that's how the federal government can move in because the United States Constitution says no state can basically pass a law that impairs the obligation of contracts doesn't say the federal government. So now we got the federal government moving in. We have the Railway Labor Act, right? And that was the Railway uh, Labor Act of 1926. And it was amended uh, in 1934 and 1936. So now this is the, the genesis of the power of the federal government to move in and tell private parties, the union and the company, what your terms and conditions can be. We're talking about wages. We're talking about time off. We're talking about all those matters. We're talking about benefit, employee benefits. And so now the federal government uh, can do it. But, it. but it all came from, let's, think about the Great Depression, when there were all kinds of laws being passed against creditors. And creditors had contracts. And so that was an impairment of the obligation of contracts, right? So the, 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 it was, the creditors wanted all this, all this money. They wanted the contracts. They wanted their money back. We had the Great Depression. People didn't have money. So that was kind of the genesis of the, of the whole situation. So, Brad, now we've got the Railway Labor Act that was passed. So we've covered the Constitution. But what gave the power to the government to do the Railway Labor Act? It was the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution. And that can, that can get uh, very detailed, but basically, the Congress has the power to regulate, regulate interstate commerce. You know, and if you want to know all about the history of the Commerce Clause, then, then we, we can do that sometime, or you can go to law school, or you can research it, but the Commerce Clause is quite interesting. So under the Commerce Clause, interstate commerce, they have the power to regulate it. Brad, they passed the Railway Labor Act, and the Railway Labor Act gives the government the authority to move in, sort of like on a national emergency basis, right? 
and uh, move like they did uh, recently with the railroad unions. Well, right. And when we all stop and think this makes sense, we have to understand that a lot of times when you analyze something, you have to think in the abstract as far as the far ends of each scenario or, or situation. Because everybody goes, oh, well, this makes sense. Let's uh, We can't have the railroad going on strike at a time when we're in the Christmas season and we have interstate commerce and we need goods to be uh, transported back and forth and we need to get gifts for under the tree and we need to be supplies, able to food. supplies. We need to be able to have food for the for the dinner and we, we want to make sure we have food on our, our shelves in the grocery stores. We want to make sure people can get from one place to another. So obviously we'd never want to have the, the airlines or the railroads being able to pass or go on strike at times that are so essential to our country. And you start saying, well, is there ever a time when it's not essential? And then we start talking about, okay, now are we going to allow contracts or, or the, allow the government to step in? And we're not saying state government. We're saying government, so, to step in and start regulating the contracts between labor and management. And it, it can go further, Gary, because I think we, we've talked about it. Or you take one look at COVID and you start talking about, did we allow the government to step in and start regulating contracts between landlords and tenants that's exactly one of the greatest points we're going to make today look at that it says it says in black and white language the united states constitution no state shall pass a law to impair the obligation of contract well if you live in arkansas or florida or new york or california or oregon right and you were uh, a, a tenant you had a contract with your landlord if you're a landlord you had a contract with a tenant and then all of a sudden the government the state government which we just said the constitution said they can't do it the state government came in and passed the laws. Then what did they do, Brad? They put moratoriums on rent, moratoriums on foreclosures, moratoriums on evictions, right? Well, sure. And it's not necessarily stop it. It's even limited. And we even saw that in Colorado. We saw times when people were coming in and they were limiting the, uh, the, 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 the ability of landlords to carry out their foreclosures. And uh, the laws were being passed, regulations were being passed, temporary, uh, temporary moratoriums were being passed. Uh, there were there were obviously the, the, or there were times when they were talking about whether or not you could collect your rent, and for a landlord, uh, so it, it it steps in and it starts talking about when, although this rule is there, when can you change it or when should it be allowed to change it for the fact of an emergency or the public good. And that's what, what supposedly they're looking at. Um, and I'm always careful because we don't take sides in this show, but I'm always careful because each side has its own way of viewing as to whether or not what the government is doing when it puts a moratorium on your right to carry out a provision within a contract, whether or not that's for the public good. Right, and so since this is a legal show and legal anatomy, we're breaking it down to its parts for you. Don't forget at the end of the show, we're gonna cover our American idiom like we always do have a little fun and we got a quote for you i got a great quote for you today so don't forget that's coming up at the end of the show but but brad it's like this right here it's it's clear on its face let's let's make up an example a, an easier example we have a law let's just say we have a law that says you cannot get in your car on mondays you can't do it that's i mean that's pretty clear you can't get in your car on mondays but monday Afternoon, you have a medical emergency with your mom, and you're at home, and the ambulance isn't available. You got to put your mom in the car to go to the hospital. Well, that's sort of an emergency. 
So now, think about this, folks. The, the court has to create an exception to, to a pretty plain rule, to a pretty plain rule for an emergency situation. Brad just said that a minute ago. So we've got an emergency. So now we've got to create a new test by the courts, not the legislature. A test, Brad, a test with parts to it. And if you meet those parts, then we can carve out an exception to this very plain rule. Right. Now, uh, that that exception would be one where you're saying that's between two private parties and there's not necessarily a contract that you have with your mom to take her to the uh, to, to the, uh, the hospital. Uh, but go a step further. Say there is a contract of some type where you're not going to drive your car on Monday and then all of a sudden you're faced with the emergency that a person, and maybe not your mom, but just a person, is, is in a situation where they need to be to the hospital and they need to be taken to the hospital and you're going to drive. Can the state have a law that, that would address or impair that contract of the use of that car on Monday between two private individuals? Or say, we're not going to allow you Mr. So-and-so to enforce the provisions of that contract that says that as a result of uh, the Mr. Good Driver having driven that car on Monday, he now owes double the, the car payment for that particular month, and he doesn't get the use of the car for six months. Well, take, take another example, an even better example. Let's say a business A over here has is under contract to deliver goods to business Z. Business A has to deliver goods to business Z, Z, but you can't do it on Mondays. But it happens to be essential goods, let's say, let's say medical supplies, and they're necessary, and it's an emergency, maybe like COVID-19 or another type of emergency. They have to be delivered, and we have a contract between two, two, two private parties. Now the government, maybe even the state government, is going to come in and say, you either can do that or you can't do that, or here's your terms and conditions where you're going to do it. So even though the United States Constitution says no state can uh, uh, enforce a law that impairs the obligation of contracts, it happens. So how does it happen through the brat, through the courts, Brad? Because let's explain how they carve out exceptions maybe to meet an emergency. Well, the court's going to look at it and determine, first of all, uh, does, uh, does the action actually substantially impair a contractual relationship? Is there a relationship and is it being impaired by what the state is doing or what the, the court is doing? Uh, it's going to look at the contractual relationship and determine if there's one in existence. Uh, we've been pretty, pretty clear cut in the contractual relationships we've talked about here as far as saying, okay, uh, the action uh, of the government to step in uh, could impair contractual relationship. If the, if the government looks and says, I hereby order you to deliver those medical supplies, we need them at uh, the, the hospital down in Denver. We need them there right away, and we want those to delivered. And you're saying, but I got a contract saying I don't deliver on Monday. And they say, we don't care. We want you to deliver that those goods period and more than once you to you're going to right you're going you to. will do this you're hereby ordered to so can they do that can they order them to do it and and the first thing you're going to do in a court analysis you're going to determine was there actually a contractual relationship that they've impaired answer in this situation would be yes yes you can do that that that's number one so uh, that's that's what has to be looked at. The the next thing is 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 you've got to determine was there a true emergency? Are we really talking about a true emergency? Was there something really that said you had to uh, uh, had to get these goods delivered? 
by that time in that situation? Uh, was it a requirement or, or was it not? Because the government shouldn't be stepping on the toes of contractual relationships and ordering things to be done if, in fact, there's not a true emergency. And you just covered two factors. So we, here's what we've learned so far. The federal government uh, is not regulated. They, 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 under the Constitution, can enforce laws under the Railway Labor Act. They can mandate the union and the company get back together. No state can pass a law, but they do it all the time. And Brad just says, since the, the, you're looking at it, let's say you're the court, you're the judge right now, and you're looking at it and it says no state can pass this contract, I mean a law that impairs the obligation of contract, you can't do it. But wait a minute, we got medical supplies that need to be delivered, so we're going to carve out an exception. Exception number one is are we really substantially impairing the contract? And, and analysis number two, is it a true emergency, right Brad? Sure, a significant and legitimate purpose. Is there a legitimate and significant public purpose for having to carry out this action? Uh, and and it's, it's important because you can't just throw it out there whenever you want. Now, that once again goes to two sides of the story. Uh, in the railway, uh, labor union strike. You had labor union people who wanted to strike during a time period when it was essential for management to have their railroads running. They're looking and saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You say there's a, a significant legitimate purpose because you've got to keep the railroads running. We're saying that's the very reason we want to strike when we're going to strike. If we're going to strike at a time when nobody cares, what good is our strike? Who cares? You know, it's not going to do anything. we got to strike when it, it means something. It hurts somebody. When it hurts somebody. And the best people to have it hurt is the general public because who's going to bring more pressure down on railway management and railroads and the people who own the railroads than the regular public than the people and that's what we want so you're taking away the the strongest arrow we have in our quiver and putting us in a situation where we've lost some power and they say they can do that the federal government says they can do it because they control interstate commerce they regulate interstate commerce under the commerce clause of the united states constitution there's no prohibition against us from impairing the obligation of contract there is as to the states as we've explained but not us to the federal government and we have the railway labor act to back us up to say that we can do this and by the way in the history of the united states the railway labor act it controls airlines too railroads and airlines, the Railway Labor Act has been used 18 times, 18 times to impose uh, mandatory conditions. And sometimes it's said in the history of our country, well, we're just going to extend the contract. We're not going to make new terms. Sometimes they do make new terms like they did recently. But some in the history, it says we're just going to extend it on this occasion, make new terms on this occasion, extend it on this occasion. So what have we learned today? We've learned the federal government uh, can do it. There's a They can do it under the Interstate Commerce Clause. We've learned the states are prohibited from doing it, but they do it. And they do it under an, an emergency justification. And when you say do it, we mean they can impair the rights of people to contractual obligations. They can change those contractual obligations. They can let those contractual obligations be, be um, exempted and not have to follow them without impunity, with nothing happening. 
And that, you know, that's like we discussed, that's like rents, evictions, foreclosures in the state courts in different states, North Dakota, South Dakota, right, Texas. And so if you want to reach uh, us, you can email us anytime at info, I-N-F-O, at legalanatomy.net. Gary Bell, Brad Pollock, our law firm is Bell and Pollock. We are uh, in Denver, Colorado. We operate and we practice law in Denver, Colorado. We're glad to bring you this show. Uh, so, Brad, let's talk about our... Um, our idiom. We had a couple of idioms in the in the past that we uh, that we kind of covered. Let's have some fun here. At the end of every show, we do an American idiom and a quote. And so, what were the couple of past ones we were going to explain? Well, one was a storm in a teacup. Uh, and I I don't know. It's funny because when you start looking at idioms and you start going through them, you you go to the fact of saying these these are things. Of course, we know what it means. But the question is, do you even use the idiom anymore? Uh, a storm in a key, teacup is a lot of fuss about an is, insignificant problem. So before you can have a storm in the teacup, you got to have an insignificant problem <laughs> that you're going to make a big deal of. An insignificant problem in a storm in a teacup. That's you know, good. And, uh, and the other one was that we did the uh, second show on? Well, the, the second one we did is you talk to someone like a Dutch uncle. And that's to speak to someone as if they are a close relative offering perhaps stern advice. Perhaps stern advice. You know, and so, you know, as w- w- you, when you come up to holidays and you start getting ready for those holiday dinners, uh, you're going to be talking to somebody sooner or later like a Dutch uncle because you're going to be talking to them as if they're a close relative. And usually the only time you see them is that one time they show up for Christmas <laughs> or, or, or Thanksgiving. And you're going to be giving them some, always you got some advice. Everybody's always got some advice to give to somebody. So you talk to them like a, like a, um, uh, like a Dutch uncle. Got to love these American idiots. We're having a little bit of fun over the end of our podcast here. My quote today comes from Peyton Manning, and, and this is a great one. Here, here comes Peyton Manning. He says, you know, you hear about how many fourth quarter comebacks that a guy has. You hear about how many fourth quarter comebacks a guy has, but I think that really means a guy screwed up in the first three quarters. That's what I think that means. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't have to be making those fourth quarter. But comebacks. you're so famous, you've had you've had 18 fourth quarter comebacks. But of course, you didn't get there the first three quarters. So that's right. So the the new way to do Monday Night Football is to uh, talk about how many fourth quarter comebacks a person does not have. Does not have. We're going to have a new statistic, a new stat coming up. All right, Gary Bell, Brad Pollock, our law firm is Bell & Pollock. We're out of Denver, Colorado, America. We're here for you. We're going to break down current events into their legal component parts. That's why we call it legal anatomy. We're going to anatomize your mind every week. And remember, this is a non-political show. We just get down to the legal basics of whatever subject it is, whatever's happening. And it could be a very politically charged topic. However, we're not a political show. We're here to educate you on the law and have a little bit of fun on the way as we do it. See you next week.